A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength.
This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Suhail, Grayson, and Wesley, and Lily. Can we say thank you for that dramatic reading? This particular text lends itself to a dramatic reenactment, right, of that reading. In many places, in literature and in paintings, this text of the so-called conversion of Saul of Tarsus is, is pictured for us of the bright light from heaven and Saul falling from a horse, right, to demonstrate for us that we have to get off of our high horses to believe in Jesus. It lends itself to dramatic and artistic renderings because this text is a phenomenal and extraordinary story. It's a story that captures our imaginations. It's a story that stretches our, our rational thinking. It's a story that invites us to consider again and again and again the impossible possibilities of what God is able to do and continues to do in circumstances and conditions in lives that seems at first, second, or even a tenth glance beyond God's saving grace. Today we'll consider this text and the invitation that is issued back then is one that is an invitation for us now and for even tomorrow. An invitation for us to consider the many ways and the varied places where Jesus, where the Lord, encounters you and me and the world to be transformed, to be open to his invitation to take up a new way of living. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations and thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. For it is in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I want to take this text from the angle of, of advertising. Particularly truth in advertising, right? We want, we want truth to, to, to permeate when something is advertised to us. We want, the, we want the burger to be not like that 1984 Where's the Beef advertisement. We want it to be that, that, that sumptuous and, and thick, medium rare burger that is pictured on, on restaurant menus, right? We want that. We want that. We want, you know, we want what is advertised to us to work. When we officiate weddings and there is rings that are in exchanged by the couple, the couple is advertising to each other and to the world. Here are vows, here are commitments. We want what's there, as they do, to be truthful. We want diets and workout machines to do what they promise to do. Maybe more muscular lose 30 more pounds, whatever might be the case. We want there to be truth. 
We want there to be consistency. When it comes to our relationships, when it comes to God, when it comes to what God says about us, we want it to be true for us. We could call it relevance, right? We could call it consistency. We want a little dose of what is dramatized and told to us in this text to happen to us now. We're not necessarily asking for Jesus to turn water to wine or to walk on water or to turn, you know, five loaves into enough to feed 5,000. We're not asking for the, the grandiose transformations. Perhaps some of us are, will, you know, will settle for the little transformations, the, you know, the transformationettes. Change the mind of, you know, the target customer service rep who won't take my, you know, my return without the receipt. That little transformation. Maybe change the, uh, transform, transform the, the, you know, the character of maybe my, you know, my next door neighbor so that he or she can trim their hedges just a little bit more. Little transformations. But this text is a dramatic, phenomenal, cosmic transformation. And in fact, by the time we get this, to this text, there is a buildup from the prior chapter. Consider this, Acts chapter 8 opens up with introducing us to this Saul of Tarsus who's breathing violence against the church. He's one, as chapter 8 opens up, he was there giving glaring and arrogant approval to the stoning of Deacon Stephen. To the point where those who were still grieving and mourning the death of Stephen, this Saul of Tarsus is is told to us as one who went from house to house, barging through doors, pulling out men, women, and children, and hauling them off to prison. So the image we get of this Saul of Tarsus is one of vicious, animal, violent, evil. He's beyond God's saving grace. Impossible. There's no way that this man is even deserving of God's mercy. But then we meet a character in chapter 8 of this certain Simon the Magician. Someone who is not like David Copperfield. No, not the slate of hand kind of magician. We're talking about one who's into witchcraft. Into evil, into dark arts, into Ouija boards and all that stuff. And we would think, there's no way. Simon the Magician, no way. But then, the text says, right? The apostles share about Jesus, the light shines and penetrates the magician's mind and heart. No slate of hand there. This is real Jesus touching the heart of Simon the magician. And then it goes on to this encounter of the apostle Philip who meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And we're left with wondering, just as the early church forebears, did the gospel even go to Ethiopia at this time? Is it possible that this Ethiopian eunuch can possibly be transformed. And indeed, the text goes on to say, the apostle Philip shares the scriptures. And it's so effective, the Holy Spirit knows what the Spirit is doing, that the eunuch is not only transformed, but, but asks, well, Philip, what keeps you from baptizing me right here, right now? And the text says that he was indeed baptized. 
So by the time we get to this chapter 9, here is this Saul of Tarsus, breathing with violence, breathing with evil, intent on going to Damascus to stamp out any semblance, any evidence of the people of the way, the people who follow Jesus, Jesus' way. And so we're left to wonder, is the transformation and Jesus encountering Saul and transforming his life and changing him, does it happen now? Is it possible that this could happen uh, to me and to, uh, to my household and uh, to my child or children, to my grandchildren, to my loved ones? Can this possibly happen to my business partner? To my loved one who is languishing in the hospital? Can this be possible? Can this be possible in Washington, D.C.? I ain't going to name the players in that one. I'm not going to get into that, but you know who all of those folks are. Can it work? Can God's transformative power work? Or do we just set that aside and say, no, that was a fairy tale of long ago. It makes a good story. We have to ask ourselves the question, well, the text is, was written for a purpose, right? In fact, this same story is retold in chapter 22 and chapter 26. So it mattered. It mattered then, it matters now, it will matter tomorrow. What is it about this story? What is it about Scripture? What is it about God? What is it about ourselves that prevents us from wanting to believe or being able to believe or saying, yes, that story is for me, for us, for my family, for the church, for this world as broken as it is? How is it? That this story of transformation is not only true, but it's true for me, for us, and for this world. You know, the communications team went to the uh, YMCA uh, regional headquarters here last month to film the Profiles in Faith and Work. If you haven't seen our Profiles in Faith and Work series, please check that out on our, on our website. So last month, we uh, featured one of the church members here, Heidi Hutchison, who's the chief marketing officer at the YMCA. So we went over there to do some, some B-roll, some B-roll filming or uh, footage of, of her and her workplace. And there in the YMCA reception area, when you walk in, at the receptionist's desk is a bowl, a glass bowl, with pieces of blue paper folded in half. And right there, there's a stand that says spiritual food. Pick one. You pick one. I don't know what the other blue pieces of paper, I didn't want to, you know, overtake. So I took one. I took one, and here it is. This particular quote is commonly attributed to Marilyn Monroe, but it isn't. So we don't know where this is from, but be that as it may. The paper said, imperfection is beauty. Madness is genius. And it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than to be absolutely boring. That's what it said. That's what it said. The gospel according to Marilyn Monroe, air quotes. You see, the heart issue, the heart issue is that brokenness, pain, despair, sin, all that stuff, illness, death, has become just normal, the ordinary. We've sort of accepted it. That isn't 
even possible that God would even penetrate and infiltrate with his extraordinary wonder-working power to do something so glorious that would fill us with so much joy that we can proclaim from the top of the rafters, this is our God, and filled with equal passion and energy. Well, this is what we encounter every single time that Jesus encounters us, if we'll only pay attention. You see, he does make our lives, Saul of Tarsus, Philip, all the disciples, and all of us, our lives are not absolutely boring. In fact, our lives, if you consider it, is so ridiculous. Because you and I are here on a Sunday morning, praising the risen Lord again and again, teaching young people about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, proclaiming with our voices, whether we're in tune or out of tune, whether we sing as great as the choir or not, we give our tithes and offerings in the basket, we go to branch barbecue, we pray for our pastor Jack and other pastors, we support mission teams, we do all of this, that's absolutely ridiculous. We could be doing something else. So either there's a mass delusion, we're all deluded, or all crazy, or something else is happening. And that something which the scriptures testify of, and that's why the scriptures are so detailed in telling us this story and the, and the transformation of Simon the magician and of the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius the Italian centurion later on in the chapter, and on and on it goes, is because it says, you are crazy ridiculous because the world cannot understand it. Because the world cannot embrace it to see the impossible possibilities of what God does again and again and again. Now, oftentimes, we are like Ananias. We are like Ananias, who is a believer, who was a believer, who was a recognized disciple at the Church of Damascus. He himself had to encounter the risen Jesus. Now, we don't blame Ananias, because Ananias is, is just like us, and we're like him. I wouldn't want to place my hands a blessing upon Saul of Tarsus, even if the risen Jesus told me to. I would be hardened as well. I would want to bless someone who's, who's notorious for persecuting and killing other people. I would be wondering, Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure? I would be like the prophet Jonah. Are you sure that you really want me to proclaim your salvation to the people at Nineveh? Are you really sure about that? See, Ananias also needed transformation. Those inside the church and outside the church need the transformation of God, but notice what the common element was between the two. Saul of Tarsus and Ananias were given what is called in, 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 in biblical studies the day of divine necessity. In other words, there was an obligation. Their hearts were binded to do no other. That when Jesus told Saul of Tarsus, you have to go to the town and look for Ananias, you have to go. And when the Lord tells Ananias, you have to look for the man Saul and bless him. 
and place your hands on him because he will be the minister to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the people of Israel. He had to go. You see, whenever the Lord encounters us in worship service, Bible study, reading scripture perhaps devotionally, in our prayers, where the Lord often speaks to us through our prayers, when others tell us about the Lord, whenever the Lord encounters us, it is but another opportunity for the Lord, for the Spirit of God to take like a, like a chisel, right? That is chiseling but another piece of that, of that hardened ice. And that's why we preachers and Bible study teachers have to be humble when we preach or teach and not take credit for someone's transformation or conversion or what have you because oftentimes one's transformation is after a long line, after a lot of chiseling over the years. The chiseling could have happened in grade school and then in a, in a youth camp and maybe a Bible study after five years and then another 10 years of going to sermons and then maybe 20 years of praying and then all of a sudden, a 60, 70, 80-year-old will ask for a baptism at the beach. True story. Member of the church who got baptized, right? I won't say who, but you know who you are. That process. There are three elements in this text of what we see of how the Lord deals with people. Three elements. One is Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, and Ananias were first informed. They were then transformed and then they were conformed. They were first informed. Whenever the Lord encounters us, speaks to our hearts, the Lord informs us. Informs us about what? Informs us about his goodness. Informs us about what he has done. Informs us, in this case, the Lord informs Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you, you know, when you, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. When you hurt the church, you're hurting me. And you're hurting yourself. And the reverse is true too. If you love the church, you love me. So he's informing. The Lord always informs us. Informs us whether, oh, you have broken my heart. Um, you're not caring for the orphans and widows. You're not caring for the migrants. You're not caring for your neighbor. The Lord informs something about himself and something about ourselves. But then the Lord doesn't leave us, leave us there. After informing, the Lord will transform. Now the transform, the transformation can be maybe instantaneous, but oftentimes it's a process. Again, this chiseling action. Chisel, chisel, chisel. Break down the ice a little bit more here and there. But then the Lord's not finished. Because after the transformation happens, there's conformation. The Lord will conform our hearts, pattern our hearts like a blueprint. Those of you who are um, not on Facebook, Jack and the Outreach Foundation have been uh, posting almost every day of, the, of their travels across uh, Syria, and wonderful. Even some little uh, videos of them with, you know, with some of the school, school children and, 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 uh, and Sunday school children and in churches that they've been visiting, the, the food that they're, that they're eating. Well, one of the places that, that they visited was the, uh, the site of where that conference center is being built. Remember when we built the pergola here? Part of that was building here and also supporting the efforts to build a 
conference center for pastors uh, in Syria. And in that Facebook photo, Jack is there with the blueprint right behind him. I mean, that is amazing. We are united to our sisters and brothers halfway around the world, and there it is right there, that same, that same conference center, and there's the blueprint. And Jack will have more to, to share about that and, and the rest of his travels, but there's the blueprint that the Lord in this conformation is conforming our hearts. It's a lifelong process. Conforming our hearts so that the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we confront problems and circumstances and conditions on a, on a, on a personal scale and on a global scale, that will do so patterned after Jesus, patterned after his way. And that's why he's called the way. And the people are called the way. Because it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of praying. It's a different way of approaching life. It's a different way of approaching our business partner. It's a different way of approaching our life's challenges. It's a different way of, of seeing our successes. And that's the transformation. See, that's the transformation that transforms and impacts the world. That's the legacy gift that we all want to leave behind. Now, to, to, to those of us who feel or who, who, who believe, wow, God, is, God seems beyond my circumstances, or I'm beyond God's attention. That somehow God is just more interested in, you know, in far-flung places or in more important things, or important people. You know, the gospel has something to say about that. Whether we feel that we are beyond the reach of God, or God is beyond the reach of us, the gospel reminds us that Jesus is both God, way up high, and man, over here. That Jesus, who is called King of Kings, wow, high and mighty King of Kings, is also the servant of all. Jesus, who's called the Son of God, how exalted is that name, is also called what? The Son of Man, yes. Jesus, who is called Lord, is also called Shepherd, right? Only in Jesus do we see that right combination. He's here, up here, and he's here. He's here for you, and he's here for you. There's another poetic rendering, or a literary rendering of Jesus by the poet W.H. Auden in his Christmas oratorio where he talks about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what the poet Auden says. He, Jesus, he is the way. Follow him through the land of unlikeness. You will see rare beasts and have unique adventures. He is the truth. Seek him in the kingdom of anxiety. You will come to a great city that has expected your return for years. He is the life. Love him in the world of the flesh, and at your marriage, all its occasions shall dance for joy. 